right. I also want to invite you to, once again, to um, join us for Pillars. We have been uh, speaking about it for the past few weeks, and it really has to do with our witness in the land. God has called us to manifest His goodness in the land. It's evangelizing, but not just evangelizing. The land is the place where we work, we have connections with people, where God has placed us, and God has placed us there for a purpose. If you're a Christian, God has a purpose for you being there. You're not there by accident. You're not there randomly. You're not there just to mark time. You are there with a purpose. And some of us don't know what that purpose is, but God has a purpose nevertheless. And He wants to do, bring redemption and bring blessing to the places that He has, that has put us and especially to the people that are involved. And uh, this series will have to do with our calling as witnesses in the places that God has put us. Um, I would really invite you to um, um, uh, sign up for it by today so that we can uh, work out the groups as well. We have, I was sharing with a group of people that um, we had about, I think, 20 to 30 people come for Pillars the first time, uh, which is last year. But the Lord has placed upon my heart that, um, that God wants to do a work in the whole church in such a way that um, God will bring forth a whole new dynamism and fruitfulness uh, in our church. And so I shared with them that I'm believing God for 60 people. And I saw some people raise their eyebrows. And some of them lower their eyebrows. <laughs> so we have 60 people signed up so far. Yeah, praise God. Will someone make it 61? All right, let us pray. Lord, we thank you that you are here with us and you want to feed us the bread and the wine continually and to give us strength and victory. So we ask you that that which you intend for us beyond all the words that will be spoken about it, will come to us, Lord. Open the hearts of our imaginations and our spirits so that quite beyond everything that is said from, this, from the front of this room here, will be outpaced and uh, outshone by what you actually do in us. We want it, Lord. We want you, so we open our hearts to you. We ask you that you would tear down every veil that causes not us not to be in full contact with your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please turn with me to Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14. Um, last week, we, were, we had spoken about Abraham and Lot. And we, we, we kind of jumped over chapter 14 to go to chapter 15 when we were talking about the topic, how will I know? How can we actually know from God? Know in such a way that it resists any kind of um, attack of the enemy, every kind of um, resistance and opposition. Knowing not just in our heads so that we know information or data 
but knowing in such a way that that knowing has greater mass, greater power than everything that denies that knowing. I'm talking about that knowing that does not come just because of the fact that we studied it or that we researched it or that we concluded it or that we actually um, um, came about it, but because it was disclosed to us by God. Because God opened our heart to it and something happened in us so that that truth, the substance of the truth, was lodged inside us. That's the kind of knowledge that we're wanting. Amen? By the way, welcome Betsy. She's here alone, unfortunately. I'm sure it'll be different soon. What was I saying? Yes. The knowledge that God is talking about is what we've begun talking about since last week when Abraham asked God, how will I know that you're going to fulfill your promises? It's a good question, isn't it? So we, we went from chapter, thir- chapter 13 to chapter 15 and we jumped over chapter 14 in pursuit of that question. We're going to continue pursuing that question, but we will look, pursue it in chapter 14 now. Okay, let's look at chapter 14. Now, there's a lot of names that are a bit of a mouthful, but I will try to summarize it and simplify it uh, so that we can uh, not get mired in the pits of uh, words. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Eliasa, Kedaloama, sorry, Kedalaoma, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeba, king of Zeboim, and the king of Be- Bela, that is Zor. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea, and twelve years they had served God, served, uh, sorry, not God, served Kadalaoma, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. So what was happening was that the, the kings of the cities around Sodom in the valley of, uh, of uh, Elah, uh, the valley of Sidim, had been oppressed by the larger kings, the king of Elam, the king of Persia, the king of Babylon. Okay? So these are names of empires that were named later by those names. But actually, what's happening is that during the time of Abraham, which is two, uh, around 2000 BC or so, um, these kings were considerably smaller than the empires they were, but, but still much larger than the kings of these cities. And there were five kings of these cities of Sodom and uh, Zoar, etc., et that came against these oppressing, much more powerful kings that were ruling over them. And so the high idea that uh, the writer of Genesis is, uh, is bringing about has to do with the fact that these cities wanted freedom. They were being oppressed. They were being milked, so to speak, and had to give tribute to these other four kings that were much more powerful. And so you can understand how the kings of these five cities including Sodom, that Lot was by now already in, okay, wanted to throw off 
the shackles of these empires, so to speak. They were not actually empires. They were actually just big bullies. Yeah, big bullies. So they were oppressed. And so they were, had this enterprise to actually break that oppression of the four um, larger powers that were there. Okay? And so this is the setting of chapter 14. There's a rebellion against this oppression and uh, a desire to experience freedom. Verse 12, 12 years they had served Kadalaoma, but in the 13th year, they rebelled. And as a result of the rebellion, there's reprisals, of course. In the 14th year, Kador Laoma and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Raphaim and the Ashtaroth Kanaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shaveh, Kiriatim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and all the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. So basically what, what, what happened is that these four kings came back and gave reprisals and defeated all those other those kings that were, were basically Amorite kings, kings of that area, which we now call the Promised Land or Palestine. Uh, and these kings were routed, yeah? And the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Kadalaoma, the king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shina, and Ariok, king of Elazar. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. It's almost as if they easily defeated them and just dismissed them and went their way. Yeah. They also took Lot, the son of Abraham's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom. See, before, in the pre previous chapter, well, Lot Druk was dwelling close to Sodom. By chapter 14, he was dwelling in Sodom. Yeah? Who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Every time you see Lot mentioned, it's always Lot and his possessions. Lot and his possessions. Lot was identified with his possessions. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite brother, the Amorite, brother of Eskol and of Amor, Anna. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them, against them by night. So these were great. These were his 318 uh, servants were able to fight by night. He and his servants, and he defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought them back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. 
After his return from the defeat of Kadalaoma and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of the Most High. And he blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So he tells you the secret of Abram's uh, success, right? His victory is the fact that a God had actually delivered them into his hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Uh, the tithe, uh, which is literally the tenth, is a sign of submission to a higher power. Yeah? It was a covenant in which the higher power, higher power promises protection and, pro- and to take care of you. And you... Uh, acknowledge his lordship over you. And, and, and this was given not to kings, but given to God. Yeah? And so when Abraham gave a tithe to, to Melchizedek, he was saying, you are God. I worship you. Um, give me the persons. And the king of Sodom said to Abraham, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Uh, let Enna, Eskel, and Mamre take their share. And that's it. The question is, what caused Abram to have victory with a considerably smaller army and uh, the five kings, Sodom, Gomorrah, etc., experienced tremendous defeat. It's not all equal. It's not random. And we are told here in chapter 14 that actually there are reasons why Abraham had success, had victory, and uh, the king of Sodom, etc., had been defeated. We want to know about this. And the, the key to it seems to lie in this offering that Abraham had with uh, Melchizedek and the bread and wine that Melchizedek gave to Abraham. But you can see that not every effort at freedom to cast off oppressors get success. Not every battle that we fight seems to end up in a victory and we want to know about that. Because it's, it seems sometimes that as Christians, we are so averse to talking about victory. We are so not wanting to be triumphalistic that we think that victory is a random thing. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. I don't believe Genesis chapter 14 is recommending that point of view. Actually, Genesis chapter 14 contrasts the powers of Sodom and Gomorrah and and those five cities with Abraham's powers. In fact, the writer of um, Genesis chapter 14 is very detailed in terms of 
looking and describing Abram's resources. 318 people in his household defeated four kings in a way that these five kings could not do. I believe that God wants to speak to us about this. I believe that God wants to give us victory. He wants us to fight battles and win. He doesn't send us into battles and says, well, good luck. Just because of the fact that there are two teams here, one lost and one won, it doesn't mean that sometimes you lose, sometimes you win. That's not the message. The message is what caused Abraham to win and probably what caused Lot's guys to lose. What caused Lot to be so vulnerable that he could not resist the forces of oppression that he well probably wanted to overcome? It seems like Lot was a, a passive uh, victim of bigger forces that were going on. At least the five kings tried to fight. But we are told that this fight, this, this, this fight against oppression that these five kings were fighting was doomed. They lost. I'm getting from Genesis chapter 14 that God does not want us to actually lose like that. What do you think? And He actually gives us a key to how we can actually be people who win of a, a battle that is the Lord's battle. Not ours, but the Lord's battle. And so it's important for us as we think about fruitfulness in the land and our witness in the land to actually see that there is a battle that is going on which Lot does not seem to have been participating in or clued into. Lot just got swept along. You'll see that Lot in his big-eyed desire for, for the most fertile places. He is end up a victim and he's carried along by all the forces outside of himself. Abraham had 318 personnel trained his, in his own household. I think that's what the church should be. I think the church should be 318 at least fighters who are trained who can enter into victory. I don't believe church is just people who warm pews and come for the coffee, even if it is good coffee. I don't believe that the church is, should be people who are just recipients of words, what you say, or warmth. But in, doing, in, in receiving all these things, God is raising us up to be a people who are a household who can actually fight in the dark, who can divide up, so become smaller companies of people that actually are more powerful. I believe that if we miss that, we'll miss, we'll miss church. You can be a 10,000, but you can be pusillanimous, timid, and, and weak against the enemy. I believe God has plenty for us in Genesis chapter 14. And I will put it to you that here again in this chapter, God is giving us a key to fruitfulness. Remember how we, we, we quoted Isaiah chapter 51? 
Remember Abraham and Sarah. Remember that rock from which you are hewn. For when, they, when he was one, I blessed him and I increased him. Amen? So we're looking at this chapter and, uh, and, and seeing this. I want to put it to you that actually not every fight for, for freedom is a justified fight. If the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and, uh, and the other three kings had had victory, that victory would still have um, given rise to more wickedness and more evil in those cities because it says in chapter 13 that the, the people of, the, of, of Sodom and Gomorrah were highly wicked, very, very wicked. They would have been fighting for freedom. Not every fight for freedom is a fight that is justified. Not every fight against the oppression of the, of the four kings is justified. It's only justified when it's rooted in the righteousness of God. It's only, rooted in, it's only if it's rooted in submission to God. And you, we will actually see how it worked out with, um, with Abraham. Okay, let's have a look at this. So Lot is taken captive, and it takes a household of 318 fighters who have been trained to rescue Lot. You know what's a great prospect for us as a church? in our land, that we can be people who can go and rescue people from oppression, rescue people from their, 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 their disease, their ravages of demonic powers, their, their, their mental health issues, from their sorrows, their sadness, their oppression, their depression. You can actually enter into those places. Now, Abraham did not have to do, have to do that, but because he had compassion upon his nephew, he went for it. You don't need to. You don't need to do all this stuff. You don't need to be in the land and be constantly a minister rescuing people. But if you have the heart for them, and God can put a heart of, a heart of compassion and love for people in our land, people perhaps we haven't noticed, God can use us. That's so amazing, don't you think? When the Lord put in my heart for my campus, my, my, my college during my college days, I want to see those friends of mine saved. Can you imagine that? I think of my friends who are non-Christians, who I work with, work with, you know, banter with, go to pubs with, you know, socialize with, do all this stuff, except talk about, about Christ. Yeah, I just cannot imagine that. What say you? I cannot imagine being with people for five years, and at the end of these five years, they go to hell. I just, how can it be? How can it be? I think it's normal for the Lord to put within us a heart to start praying for them. Or else, what is the meaning of our relationship with them? Don't you think? God wants to save them through you. And you may look, I can't do anything. I mean, I can't save anybody. I can't influence anybody. But God wants to do it through us. I may be only 318, but God wants to use you. Can you imagine friends that you've had for a long time? Friends in which, in which you share bread, you share the, heart, the deepest things, except that they're not Christian. Can you imagine them coming to Christ? Oh, gosh. What do you think? 
that's what happened for me. You know, after three years, uh, three years in, uh, in, in, in undergraduates with these classmates who, are, who I knew, completely ungodly, completely kind of, you know, thumbing their nose at God and all that. And yet I love them. I want them to come to Christ. And I wish they would become Christians. I used to imagine them, you know, I used to have dreams, imagine them with me in church. Sabi, Benji, Alex, John, June, May, they all had months of the months of the year. All of them. I would dream of them coming sitting in the in, in the pews with me. You know what? It happened. It happened. I started praying for them. I started praying for them. I started seeing them, not just in terms of the music we play together or the literature that we discussed or the mischief that we got into, any, uh, all these things, but I just saw, started seeing them in terms of them being with me in church. One by one, they came to the Lord. One by one. Because my heart yearned for them. I yearned for them to become Christians. Before long, people will start saying, hey, I survived Michael's evangelizing. I'm still not a Christian because most of them were already becoming Christians. Can it happen? Can it happen? I believe we are in a war and we are in a battle. And if we see that, God can actually break through in people's lives. That a lot of times, people are not coming to Christ because of demonic powers. We are fighting not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. But when God puts a burden in our hearts for our friends, our loved ones to become Christians, something inevitable will start taking place. A seed of the inevitable will take place. It may take a long time, or it may be soon, but it is, there's a certain almost inevitability about the Lord's bringing them to, to Him. Even if it means on their deathbed. Just recently, I on on uh, on uh, um, uh, by text, one of my friends. He was one of those who, when he became Christians, um, brought in a sack of books that he had stolen from the library, and then dumped them out and says, "Yeah, I'm a Christian now." Well, actually, he backslided. And he went away from God. Went away from God. And for several years, got married, had children, all that. Had, had now had grandchildren. He had turned away from the Lord. But then one day, the Lord who had been chasing after him since then, convicted him. And the first thing he did was that he, would, he contacted me. Michael, do you remember me? I know I've been a, I've, I've been a fearful uh, uh, was it? I can't remember what the word is. A fearful um, disciple of Christ. I ran away many, many times. But I'm having cancer. I decided to come back to God. I remember those days in campus when people were just wanting to come to Jesus. I want to come back to Jesus, come back to Jesus now. I've been praying for him for about almost 40 years. There's a certain seed that God plants in, into them when we start praying for them. When God puts a burden in, 
in your heart, He puts that that com- um, that um, um, commensurate burden in them. He will not let them go. Amen. But it's a battle. It's a battle. Anyway, let's let let let's let's go on, get on with this. God is doing something, and I believe that through pillars and through our prayer and through our time together, He's actually intend- intentionally training us to be that company of people who uh, can rescue people from the enemy. And it says that. Verse 14, when Abraham heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, glorious, don't you think? And went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Wow, that's really far north. And then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen, Lord, with his possessions and the women and his people. Now here's the, here's the, the center of this chapter, I'm sure. Verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Kedolaoma and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And another king came out to meet him. It was Melchizedek. Melchizedek, Melchizedek. Melchi means uh, Melech, uh, which is uh, king. Zedek means righteousness. Yeah, whenever you see a person with a name with the name Sadok or Sadek um, or Sedek, it means righteousness. So, Monica, if you are hearing me, that's your name, Monica Sedek. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, and he was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, "Blessed be Abram by by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth." And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And so, yeah, and so you have, as we said last week, Abraham being confronted with two kings. One is the king of Sodom, who says, "Look, I'll give you all the possessions. I'll give you all the spoils of war." And then King Melchizedek, who comes in and he gives him something completely different. We see this actually um, talked about in Hebrews chapter seven. And if you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7, um, the writer of Hebrews, we'll read it from verse 3, I believe, talks about Melchizedek. We'll read it from verse 1. Now, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, king of the Most High God, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is, by first, is, he is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, which is king of peace, shalom, right? He is also father, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days or nor end of life, but resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. Or a better translation, he remains a priest continually. So we're talking about Melchizedek, who's actually a theophany or a representation of Jesus. He is God. And that is why Abraham gives him tithes. And so he gives, gives tithes to Melchizedek, and Melchizedek gives him, ministers to him, the bread and the cup, bread and wine, and says to him, Blessed be God, be Abraham of God, who has given you victory, 
God actually is the one who gave you victory, caused you to do that supernatural thing that you could not do by yourself. It is God who's always going to cause you to rescue people from, the, from oppression. It is always going to be God. And when Melchizedek confronts or, or, or meets Abraham, he opens up the whole meaning of what that battle was about. He opens up to Abraham the inner workings, the spiritual workings, the mechanisms that had taken place, the dynamics that had taken place in that victory. That in that victory, it was not just the fact that he had trained 318 um, wonderful servants in his house. It was that God had given him victory. God had given him victory. And he gave to him bread and wine. We later find that this bread and, and, and wine was given by Jesus. He says, unless you eat of the, 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 the body, right, the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink of His blood, you will have no life in himself, in yourself. Right? And so what Melchizedek is giving to Abraham and Abraham is receiving is the life of God. Not, not just the goods that Sodom, king of Sodom can give, but the life of God. And what he's saying is this, in the middle of this whole, the, 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 um, the, the, the end of the battle, right? uh, the, the, the post-bellum, what he's saying is this, I am giving you the substance of God's life so that you can go on having victory. He was feeding him the revelation and the substance of God's Word. And it is this substance that caused him to have victory. And what we need is that substance for us to have victory in the land that God has given to us. Isn't it amazing? What Melchizedek was doing was say, he's saying, I'm administering to you the life of God in this bread and this cup. And you are entering into relationship, a covenant with me, in which you give me tithes, which is a symbol of your whole life. Later on, when the king of Sodom says, hey, I'll give you this, I'll give you all the spoils of war, he says, Munin, I have lifted up my hand towards the God yeah, of heaven. Yeah? I've lifted up my hand. In those days, when you lift up your hand, you're not just doing worship you are actually saying, I make a solemn oath to be yours. So when you lift up your hands to God in worship, what you're doing is saying, I surrender completely to you. You will be my banner. When Moses lifted up his hands and Joshua was fighting down in the valley against the Amalekites, he was lifting up his hands in surrender to God. And he was going to do it moment by moment, moment by moment, not just once. He was going to do it for many seconds. And he would keep his hands up, and as long as he kept his hands up in surrender to God, and God holding up his hands, so to speak, he would have victory. And so when Melchizedek comes to him, he gives him not just words, he gives him the life of God. It is this life of God that we want. It's this life of God that will cause us to have victory and will cause us to experience His supernatural life flowing in the land that, God, 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 that we find ourselves in front of non-Christians. It is this that we, we desire. 
we don't not desire just words. We want the substance of those words. Amen? And so what Jesus was saying is this, you, you got my words, you got my words, but you need to eat my flesh. If you don't eat my flesh, you will only have words. And the words can give a little bit of comfort, but the comfort that comes from words is nothing compared with, the, with what the words are pointing to. I want to give you life. I want to give you supernatural life. I want to give you my spirit that causes you to do things that you could not do by yourself. It's only because of my spirit that you can presume to actually defeat five ki- uh, four kings. It is this that actually causes you to do that. This this that's going to cause you to live in the land doing things that you could not do for yourself or for other people. And may I suggest to you that actually at the center of this, this denial, okay, the, the refusal of what King Sodom was, was giving, the refusal of the, 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 the goods of this world, and the receiving of this covenant in which God was going to feed him, and he's going to eat of the, of the life of God, eat the miracles of God, and eat the faith of God, eat the Word of God, so that the Word of God became substance in him, he was going to proceed from that. Not the comfort of words. In Psalm 85, it says, I will hear what God has to say, for He will speak peace. Let them not go to folly. You know what I used to do? I get that word and I say, Ah, good. It's going to be okay. I will listen to what God says and God says peace. I didn't realize what God was saying is this. No, you have to listen. Peace is just the headline. You haven't heard what, you haven't heard what I'm going to say yet. And so many of us as Christians, we get scant comfort just because of the fact that the words are encouraging. That the Bible is encouraging. It tells us, oh, you have peace. So what happened to me was this, when I would get these words, when, especially when I was anxious, God would say, I will speak peace to you. <sighs> okay, no need to read the Bible now. I got that. That is just a word, peace. Does that make sense? What God was saying is, I want you to hear until the, the, the thing that I have to you, have for you under the headline of peace will be administered to you, be eaten by you, be given to you, be swallowed by you, be changed in you. You know? And so I realized that what we are talking about when Melchizedek gives bread and cup, when we hear the word of Jesus, when we read the Bible and all that, is far deeper than what we tend to be satisfied with. We tend to be satisfied that the Bible says comforting things. That's great. That's actually not bad. You can get something out of it. But that's not what God has for you. God has the thing that He's talking about. Not the comfort of the words. He's actually got, got the substance of it, the power, the, 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 the resurrection power, the kind of thing that heals diseases. You are not taking words into your land. You're not talk, talking Bible bullets into the land. You're taking the power of God into the land because you can talk about all that you want about healing and all that kind of stuff. And those are just words. Unless you have the power that the words are talking about, you are only talking words. And that is why many Christians can be donkey's ears as Christians and still not see that happen in their land. Because what they are arming themselves with is words. All those words are good, but they are the portals to the actual thing. 
So when Abraham was functioning with the 318, he was already tr- functioning in the power of God without even having heard the words. Melchizedek was saying, you know what happened there, Abraham? Do you realize what you did? you know what was operating in you? It was the power of God. It was the bread and wine that was taking. You, did, you were operating in it before you even knew about it. You know what happens in, uh, in, in Western Christianity? We read and read and read and read and read books and commentaries about the thing, and in the end, we, we spout out our little words. Whoop-de-doo. The point I'm making is this. These things are good because they point to the hard work, the serious work of waiting on God. Until we wait upon God and God comes through, we'll still be just whoop, whoop, whoop. That's all. It may be from this Bible, but the Bible is speaking about things that have great substance in us. And what was happening was this. We can read, oh, 318, we defeated five kings. Yeah, but actually, it's a big deal. You try doing it? You try doing it? Oh, and all these, all these guys got healed. You try doing it? It doesn't just happen. We have a facile, word-based apprehension of God. No, what God wants to us is to have an up, is for us to have an apprehension of God Himself. Amen. And so, what uh, what was happening here in chapter fourteen has to do with the, uh, has to do with the fact that when Melchizedek came to Abraham, he was saying, "What you didn't understand, I'm going to give you understanding of it. But I'm going to give you something more. I'm going to give you the bread." and the wine. And this is an exchange. It doesn't come as a free pass. You give me your life. You tie yourself to me. You raise up your hands towards me and make a solemn oath in which you are mine. And you are mine and my authority will flow over you because you have no choice anymore. Or maybe I should say it better. You choose me all the time. You have a choice, but you choose me all the time. Amen? And so I believe that this is something that God wants us to have. So you have to ask the question then, how can these words be changed into flesh and blood? How can they become substance in me? If I now realize that God is not just a God of words, He is though, but because of the fact that God, when He speaks His word, his word is not just words, but is has power, has being. The word for word in the Old Testament, Dabar, implies that when the word of God is spoken, it contains within itself God's himself, God's power. If that is the case, I will look at the communion very, very differently. I want us to be very honest with ourselves. What do you think? happens when you take the communion. Now, many of us come from a traditional tradition that's kind of Anabaptist, in which we don't believe there's real presence in the, in, the, in the cup or the bread. We think this is just a symbol. That's a very Anabaptist thing. So because of that, we tend to think of the, the real substance as in the, the words that we say, the Bible words that we say. But if you begin to take 
know, take note and take seriously the fact that the life of the real presence of God is in this. We're not just taking grape juice or some cracker. Something more will take place. Okay. And I'd like us to measure out the gap between our belief and what I just said. A few years ago, well now several years ago, when I was in Malaysia, our administrator, Nancy, in our church, had a very, very serious sickness, a blood disease. It got worse and worse and worse until she found herself in hospital dying. And things got worse and worse and worse. And there were a few church members that were gathered around her bed. And the doctor said, she's going. One of the members of the church was a boy who was a teenager, 17 years old. Huan Xiong, his name was, was one of those kids who was precocious for his age, mature. He was kind of an old soul. He took things very seriously. So when we talk about communion, every time in his communion, I could see that he was the kind of person who would take his time take the communion. When the doctor said that, he rushed back to church, which was just across the road, and grabbed communion. By the time she arrived, she was almost dead. Later on, she shared about, she felt herself, she, she could see that she was leaving her body. And Huan Xiong took the bread and just shoved it in her mouth and poured the wine into her mouth, and she revived. And she was healed. And she went on to live, live and continue ministry for several years, completely healed of her blood disease. Now, we want to measure out the gap between what I've just said and what we really believe about communion. And ask God, I believe, help my unbelief. Because that is the, de the gap between our own understanding of communion, which is in our head, and the substance of that communion that's bubbling up and living in our heart. And what we realize when we, are, when we hear a story like that, many of us, is just this, I can't believe. Every time I take communion, I do it as a pious ritual, but I can't believe. I don't believe that. I don't believe that when I'm eating the bread and the cup, something will happen, something will, 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 will take place in my own body. We have to be honest with ourselves because there's no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Just like the man said, I believe, help my unbelief. I need to be able to calibrate out and measure out my unbelief so that I can wait upon him perhaps a little longer until belief comes. Jesus says, you have seen me and yet you do not believe when he talked about the eating the bread of the, 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 and, the, and the cup. You see, but you don't believe. Seeing does not mean you believe. 
Isn't that amazing? You can see the miracles and verify that those miracles and, and, and are miracles, but you may not actually believe. And what I mean by believe is this. Be able to absorb it to such an extent it becomes a hard rock inside you to such an extent that whenever you are faced with another situation, that rock prevails against any other hard thing. That is what he means by believe. Believe is to eat and be completely, completely committed to it and, 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 and experience it throbbing inside you rather than just a thought in our minds. We have a gap to, to cross. We have a gap to traverse. Lord, help my unbelief. I believe. I believe. I really believe. But the extent of my belief is only up to a human level. My mind, my thoughts, my upbringing, my disappointments allow me to only believe this much. I can't in and of myself believe enough to experience that belief translated into miracles. Does that make sense? That's why the church is so silent. It's not like what you see in uh, Asbury. You know what happens in Asbury? In Asbury, the spiritual cloud, the veil has been torn down so that when people are confronted with very simple message, very simple truth. Jesus healed. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus loves you. There is no more, um, there's no more uh, uh, covering, no more blockage to it. It goes right inside. We need that. That's what we need. When revival happens, the veil is torn down. It was very interesting because last Saturday, I was, I was praying and I was having this sense of God wanting to come immediately and about revival. And I felt that I should read about the Asbury revival in 1970 because they had a great revival in 1970, the deep, very deep. It spread through all, 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 all states in the U.S. And I, my heart was warmed by that. And suddenly I realized we know a lot of things, but our minds and our hearts have been veiled to the actual reality. So what happens in revival is this. When people hear a nudge from God, even though they're uncomfortable about it, they, they dare not say no. Why? Because God is that immediate. We can say no to the leading of the Spirit because He's not that real. We just get a thing in, in our head and, and it can be minimized and it can be diminished. But in revival, that thing is no longer there. God speaks loud and clear. You feel it. You can't, you dare not not feel it. You, you dare not turn away from it because it's just like God's right in front of you and He's speaking. And so I started sharing it. I shared it with those who come for Sunday evening prayer. I did not know then that another wave of revival had started in Asbury just that day itself. I did not know that. But the Lord was speaking to me about what He wants to do in our church. And when I look at what's ha been happening in daily prayer, I see a group of people who are wanting to wait on God and who are wanting God's substance. We are going beyond just praying prayers. Most of the time, it's quiet, waiting for God to speak being the object of His love rather than subject by 
dishing out prayers to Him. Prayers, saying prayers is good, but we are mainly allowing God to form us. Amen? And so that's, that's something that Melchizedek was doing with Abraham. Abraham. How do we experience that? How does that belief begin to come? How does that actually happen? And this is where I'm going to say something that you've heard many, many times. You have to wait on Him. Now, when I say you have to wait on Him, what I mean is this. There will come a time in which there will be great tragedies that will take place. Tragedies that we will not have the power to deal with. Attacks of the enemy that will overwhelm many Christians. Shakings that will be tremendous. And at that time, many of us will feel, I wish I had more strength. I wish I had more faith. I wish I had taken seriously the high cost of experiencing faith. I just don't have the faith to do this or to do that. To do that other thing. I just don't have it. Because it just didn't fit into my schedule. Waiting on God just didn't fit. You would not say that when a child is desperately sick. When a child is desperately sick, when my, des- my child is desperately sick, I could find time. Oh, I don't care. I will find time. And when I say I don't have time, it just means that I don't have a revelation of how much I need this. And so, what God is wanting to do through the feeding of the bread and the cup is to bring us faith. It's faith means not how I respond to what the Word of God is saying. Faith is something that's in me that's almost independent of my beliefs. It's independent of how, how I feel. Faith is something that God takes like a, like a rock and He whacks me with it. Boom. And it goes inside my chest cavity and I can't help having faith. That's what faith is. Faith is not my trying to stick my belief to the sticking post and try to strain out at the gnats. No. Faith comes and you can't make it happen. Your, you and my, uh, your and my lack of faith is not something I can help. We can help. We can only wait. And when we wait upon Him, we are saying, Lord, whatever you say, I'm there for you. For however long it takes, I may have to go back, come back, and make more time, but I need more. My children are growing up. They need more. My circumstances need more. It seems like for fruitfulness in the land, there are two kinds of faith that are needed. One is the, what I would call a little bit of a passive faith. The faith that comes when we are weak and we need God to just take over. You do it. I can't do anything. You do it. Yeah, Many of us experience miracles that way. Oh, I came to an end myself. I can't do anything. I'm just going to sit down and God does it. Then there's another kind of faith. It's the faith that, I, that Psalm talks about. Psalm 60 talks about. It says, Through our God we shall do valiantly. 
for it is He that will tread down our enemy. And this is this kind of faith that caused 318 people to actually go after the enemy and go after Lot all the way up to Damascus. That kind of faith. The kind of faith that God calls, us, calls upon us for a special crisis moment in which you just have to be strong enough to just get up and go. Does that make sense? And when we are found wanting, it is because probably we haven't built up that faith for the moment. The, the men of Ephraim, Psalm 78 says, turn back in the day of battle, even though they were armed with, with arrows. They, had, they suffered a, a, a loss of uh, morale. They lost their nerve at that time. I'm under, I'm, I've come to the conclusion that the reason why many people don't experience the, the acts of God is because there are many moments in which something more is required of us, but we just don't have it. We haven't availed ourselves to the Holy Spirit. He says, Isaiah 40, if you wait upon the Lord, He'll renew your strength. You'll mount up with wings as eagles. I just need to be there at the right time and the right time so that I have strength of an eagle that I can mount up then. I have found times in which I was supposed to mount up and I couldn't. Have you? So there's a way in which we can sometimes believe God for fruitfulness in the, in the land, but there's a requisite mounting up that comes that we saw in the 318 people in, in Abraham's uh, household that is opportune for us. Amen? Praise God. God wants to do it. God has it for us. Melchizedek has come. And he wants to feed us. Amen? He wants to feed us. Praise God. I have one more thing to say, but I'll leave it for next week. Okay, let's pray. Let's do business with God. You know where you are. I know where I am. At least slightly. Abraham said, I've raised my hand to the Lord God that I will not give kings of Sodom opportunity to say, I have made Abraham rich. It involves a turning away from the, the riches of Lot. Not that way. God has financial blessings for us, I believe, but not that way. God is generous, but not that way. If the riches of Lot and the possessions have cluttered up your space so much so you have no space for God, I want to invite you to turn back to Him. I want you to take control.
I understand how painful it is to let go of control of the only factor that sometimes we feel we have control in, and that's time. I understand how it's easy for us to be completely petrified every time when we have to go back to go to the wire and there's no time. We know the the terrible feeling of that. The panic, the anxiety, the rush. But when we all raise up our hands to God, we say, all that is yours too. Lord, help my unbelief. But I believe, I believe, whatever there's there, Add to it, Lord. Increase it. Tear down the veil that thickens the separation from me and you. Let your word become so immediate, so real, that I can't ignore it. Circumcise my heart right now. And sensitize it again to you. I want to know your secrets. And for that, I commit myself to your own heart's desires for my land. I give up my own favorite things that I want you to back up. And I want to follow you, your desires. I lift up the land that you have placed me, the peculiar shape of things, of people that are around me. And I thank you, Lord, that you've given me the bread and wine of your own supernatural life to win victories on behalf of my family, on behalf of the oppressed, the hopeless, the needy, the sick, the depressed, the self-destructive, the tormented, all there in my land. They've been there for a while. Let me hear their cry. Come Holy Spirit, we welcome you. Come, Holy Spirit, I need you. Come, sweet Spirit, I pray. Come, sweet Spirit, I pray. Come in your strength and your power. Come in your strength and your power. Come in your own gentle way. Come. In your own gentle way. Come, Holy Spirit, I need you. 
sweet spirit, I pray. Come in your strength and your power. Come in your own gentle Pour yourself upon us, we pray. We thank you, Lord, that you are a priest continually for every sin, every moment of weakness, every moment of need, continually, every day, every moment, you are there for us to give us your life. Bless your name. Thank you. We commit ourselves to you for your making. Make us your witnesses, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.